will read from Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is the word of God. Oh, good afternoon. I'm Jeremy, one of the leaders here. It's my privilege to be able to open the book of Exodus with you. Um, If you are here for the first time or visiting or you are a member who's here week in and week out, this book is for you. um, We're excited to get into this book and we hope that this will be the most encouraging series that we've ever done at City Light. And the main reason for that is that Exodus is a story, but it's a story that's meant to reveal truth about who God is, to introduce you to who God really is in and of himself. And our hope is that over these seven weeks, and then over the following seven weeks in the second part of this book, that you would know God more deeply and truly than you ever have before. And I'm going to start today by asking a question that I've never heard anyone ask in my entire life. I've never overheard anyone ask this question. I've never been asked it directly or asked anyone else this question. But I wonder if you'd be able to answer this. What is the single greatest thought you have ever had in your life? How would you answer that question? What is the single greatest thought you've ever had in your life? Now, I imagine many of us are drawing a blank at this point. But let me give you a few clues to get your mind stirring. Something It's probably something that has made you, as you thought of it, smile or laugh. Maybe it was an understanding, a profound realization about yourself or about people around you. Maybe it was a thought so profound that it changed the course of your life. But I wonder if you'd be able to answer that question. What is, the, what is the greatest single thought you've ever had? Now let me read to you a quote from a man called A.W. Tozer, a preacher in the early 20th century, who said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you hear the word God, whether you're a follower of Jesus or skeptical about the claims of Jesus or anywhere in between, when you hear the word God, what comes to mind? Are there images or other words that come to mind? Or, can I tell you what I think is probably most likely? That maybe you don't really have any negative or positive impressions either way. That we draw somewhat of a blank when it comes to hearing that word God and responding to it. And I think there's a reason for that. We're in the middle of a project, a cultural project, that's been going for about 50 or 60 years, you know, give or take. 
where we believe that most of the answers to finding a happy and meaningful life are going to be found inside ourselves. And so most of our best thoughts and time and effort, the best of psychology, our, our, our most concentrated efforts have been towards understanding ourselves. And we have very little language or thinking around transcendent things like God. In fact, the rest of Tozer's quote goes like this. He says, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking and worshipping men and women. We are studying the book of Exodus for 14 weeks, and our single goal is that you would know God as He is, in all His enormity and glory, in all His splendor. We pray that this series would be like a hurricane of fire through your mind, destroying all weak and anemic views of God that any sort of paper-cut-out, stick-figure versions of God would be burned up and all that would be left is a mountainous truth of who God is. You know Him and His character such that your best thoughts and words would come to mind when you understand who God is. Then when we say God, it would bring forward a rush of great thoughts that we would be thinking of God truly as He is. Not some second-hand opinion of God, not some weak human conception of Him, but God as He has communicated Himself through His Word, the Bible. And so our prayer is that over this series, you'll be getting into God's Word every day. That's what those daily reading notes are for, so we'd love for you to pick those up. But as we study the book of Exodus in our small groups, in our private time in the Word, in the Sunday gatherings, we pray that you would be blown away by who God is and what He has done. And so I'm going to pray that as we open up the book of Exodus, as we open up the pages of Exodus chapter 1, that God would do that work through His Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray now. Father God, we praise You that You don't leave us to guess as to what You are like, but You have communicated Yourself to us through Your Word, that You have given us Your Holy Spirit to give us understanding that we might know You truly, that whilst we can never know You exhaustively, we can know who You really are and have a relationship with You. And Father, we pray that we would give up small conceptions of who you are and be blown away by the God that you are, sovereign, good, and ultimately faithful. Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. As we get into the book of Exodus, you can't underestimate how great and how big an impact this book has had. You can't underestimate the importance of this book to the African-American community and to their story to the Jewish community and their story, to other social and civil movements, to the arts community. This book has had a massive impact on the course of history. And we're still talking about it thousands of years later for that reason. But it would be amiss to kind of just start where we are in chapter 1 because the story of Exodus has its roots in the book before it in the Bible, the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. And if you were with us last year as we moved through the story of the Bible from beginning to end, you may be familiar with how this story starts. God creates humankind, and it's the only thing on earth made in His image, with dignity and worth. And He creates humankind to live in relationship with Him. God's plan is that humankind would cover the earth, and that the earth would be covered with God's people, living under God's good rule, and that they would be in His place. But we reject God, we sin, we break relationship with Him, death enters, and all the trouble that comes with sin, and the relationship with God is broken and severed, But even from that point, God begins his rescue plan. He begins drawing people to himself, and he starts with a battler of a man named Abraham. 
Abraham is nothing special. He's nothing significant. He's just a guy. And God says, I'm going to start my rescue plan with you. And he makes some extraordinary promises to a pretty unextraordinary man. In Genesis chapter 17, sentence 8, we read this. This is what he promises to Abraham. He says, And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God says, look, Abraham, through you, I'm going to make you into a great nation. In fact, there are going to be so many descendants of you that it'll be more than than even the stars in the sky at the moment. And even to this day, almost a third of the world's population claims some kind of lineage to Abraham. But he says to him, "Your, your, your descendants will be numerous. These will be my people in my place, the land of Canaan. Under my rule, I will be their God. And so he starts with this man, Abraham. And Abraham has a son. And his son's name is Isaac. And we'll go through the family tree just here in the next slide. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob gets real busy and has 12 sons, and they're all listed up there for you. But uh, but this is where the story gets interesting. Jacob does something that was not what you'd probably call best practice parenting. He decides that he's got a favorite son, and his favorite son is Joseph. And just so that the other kids in the family know that he's the favorite, he gives him a very special coat. To, to make him stand out from the others. If you'd seen the musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, it's kind of loosely based off this story from the Bible. But not only does he pick out one child and identify them as the favorite, he also gets them to rule over the rest of them and to boss them around. Now you can imagine how that would go in family dynamics. But more than that, Joseph is young and he's arrogant and he has a dream that his brothers one day will bow down to him. And so he decides that it's reasonably important to tell his brothers this story. And for them, that's the last straw. The older brothers are so mad that they want to kill him. And a few of them are like, whoa, 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 whoa. hey, we're not maniacs, right? Let's not kill him. We'll, just, we'll sell him into slavery and tell our dad that he's dead. And so that's what they do. That's the, that's the compromise. You think your family's got problems, right? This, this one is a mess. And so they sell Joseph into slavery, but God is sovereignly working out his plan. And through a series of incredible circumstances of of unfair imprisonments, he actually brings Joseph to basically be the prime minister of Egypt. He ends up administering the kingdom of Egypt under Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the known world at that time. And not only that, but because of Joseph and because of the dreams that God has given him, they're able to survive a drought of seven years and to provide food for the nations around them as they come to get food. And at the end of the book of Genesis... We read this incredible story of how his brothers come back to him and the relationships are restored. And the book of Genesis finishes with this. In Genesis chapter 50, we read the end of the story. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, so they're in a far-off land, they're not in Egypt at this point. When they saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent to him a message saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servant of the God of your father. Joseph wept when he spoke to them. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. So Joseph's dream ends up coming true. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. 
Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, and he, he and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. How crazy is this? His brothers, who tried to ruin his life, eventually come before him with their lives in their hands, and he graciously accepts them back in. The family is stitched back together. And not only that, but if, they, if that hadn't happened, none of them would have survived the drought. And so through the evil that they had committed, see what he said to his brothers? He said, though you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Though his brothers did something despicable, God was using it to bring about good and to fulfill the promise that he'd made to their great-grandfather, to Abraham, that he would indeed make a great nation out of them. And so Genesis, uh, Genesis finishes there. Joseph dies, and then we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 1, and things take a bit of a turn. Look at what it says in Exodus chapter 1, sentences 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So when they're in Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis, God's promise that there'd be this great nation has not yet come true. There's only 70 of them, which for one family is still actually quite extraordinary, but in the ancient Near East, not really a big deal. And so there's 70 of them only, but over the next 400 years, they grow into a massive nation. In fact, the words here are meant to echo the words in Genesis 1. When God says to humankind, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, we read here that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly. They're expanding. This is, this is the Bible's coy way of saying there were lots of special cuddles, and the, the, the groups were growing and growing and growing until we had this massive nation within Egypt. And so God has been faithful to his promise that he would bring about a great nation. But they are not yet in God's place, not yet living under God's rule. And the question becomes, well, how is Pharaoh going to respond to this? The ruler of the known world sees this great nation growing within his realm of influence. How does he respond? Well, the answer is not well. Look what it says in Genesis, Exodus 1, 8 to 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt... Who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. It's not just modern societies that have struggled with racial integration. Pharaoh sees this nation growing. He worries that if war breaks out, they might side with a, a, a rebel nation. And so he decides that he's going to make life hard for them. He's going to suppress them. He's going to cut off their economic opportunities in the hope that it would weaken this nation. And so he sets taskmasters over them and he puts them to hard labor. And he presses them and presses them. But what he doesn't realize is that God is behind them. That the reason they are growing is not because they're a superior people, but because God is fulfilling his promises. And so in sentence 12, we see that his efforts are, are useless. In Exodus 1, 12 to 16, we read, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. 
So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Pharaoh proposes a final solution. He sees that even as they oppress them, the nation keeps growing and they can't be put down, so he presses them harder again in slavery. They continue to grow. And so he gathers the midwives and says, when, you, when they're giving birth, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. This is a horrendous solution. I mean, let's be clear. This is the, the most powerful man in the known world at this time. And he is using that power for an awful decree. The book is setting him up as clearly and as badly as, as a, an ancient Hitler or Stalin. Make no mistake about it. But the crazy thing is, God won't let it happen and he frustrates his plans. In Exodus 1.17, the midwives refused to be a part of it. Look what happens. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, and they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. In a way, this is God's sense of humor. He uses these midwives of low status to frustrate the most powerful man in the known world. He wants to, to execute a, a despicable decree, and they refuse to do it. It says here, the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. That is, they took their very lives in their hands to refuse the most powerful man in the world, who at that time didn't have to get his policies through Senate or anything like that. He was judge, jury, and executioner. Whatever he said was going to happen, happened. And they refused him. And God humiliates him, using these women who had no status in the ancient world, to subvert his plans. As it says in the New Testament, God will use the weak to shame the strong, and he does. And Israel continues to grow. Even after this, they get stronger and stronger. And instead of hearing the warning, instead of realizing that he's up against a power that's far too great for him, Pharaoh doubles down on it and decides to go even worse. At the end of chapter 1, we read this in 122. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast in the Nile, but let every daughter live. The woman conceived, uh, sorry, and then now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him to a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river. And while her young woman walked beside her, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go 
and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So catch what's going on here. Pharaoh is subverted by these midwives. So he finds another way. He issues a general decree to all his people. You see a Hebrew child, a son, you throw him in the Nile. And this Levite family, descendants from Levi, one of Joseph's brothers, this Levite family try and hide their son for three months. And when they realize they can't anymore, they give him up and put him in a river in a basket and have him float down. His sister is kind of watching this whole thing unfold. And at the same time, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river to bathe and sees this baby floating in. She opens up the, the, the basket and he's crying. And she's like, what am I going to do with it? And Moses' sister steps in and says, hey, um, if you're looking for someone to look after that child, I think I know someone. And what ends up happening when Pharaoh actually tried to destroy God's plan and God's people, he ends up paying that child's own mother to raise that child so that he will become a prince in his own palace, the one who will eventually overthrow his empire. Even as Pharaoh is trying to resist God, God is using Pharaoh's very efforts against him. When he tries to destroy his people, God brings about and raises up the person who will destroy Pharaoh's empire. I mean, this is a masterstroke. God is completely sovereign and superior. God is messing with him. At every stroke, when Pharaoh tries to do worse and worse, God uses it against him. It's almost like this. I, was, uh, I don't know if you enjoy classical memes. If you don't, I'll, let me just introduce you to the concept. It's where you take a great work of classical art that's usually about something grand like God or something transcendent, and then you kind of associate it to something pretty inane and everyday. And I was looking for some images for the family tree bit with Jacob, and there's this old painting um, of, uh, of Jacob wrestling with an angel. And the caption is, and the angel said to him, stop hitting yourself. But he could not stop, for the angel was hitting him with his own hands. Now, if you grew up with older brothers or even older sisters, you may know this experience, right? When you really want to humiliate your younger brother or sister, you beat them up with their own hands. Just to, just to double down and to show just how inferior they are to you. You beat them up and you say, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself, right? Now, this is exactly what's happening in the book of Exodus. Every time Pharaoh tries to strike out against the promises of God, God uses it back against him. This is not a coincidence. God is moving powerfully here. And every time Pharaoh strikes out, he ends up striking himself. And so we follow along and we see that the story of Moses begins here at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And we are introduced to what he is like. And just as things seem to be going well, something happens. In chapter 2, sentence 11, we read this. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why did you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. 
But Moses fled, uh, fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, uh, uh, filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came down and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? And Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son, and he named his son Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now we're tracking with this story of God raising up this people, even within Egypt, even under the cruelty of Pharaoh. And then we get this odd story where he sees a man of his own nation being beaten. He intervenes, he strikes the Egyptian and ends up killing him. And he goes to hide his crime. But several days later or weeks, we're not really told, there are two Hebrews fighting, and Moses intervenes and says to them, why did you strike the other guy? And he turns around and says to them, well, who are you to talk about? Everyone knows that you're the guy who killed some Egyptian, right? And suddenly Moses panics. He realizes that the word about it is out, that nothing has been hidden. And Pharaoh hears about it too. So he flees east to the land of Midian. And then we get this weird story where he's hanging out with this priest who's got seven daughters and he's clearing out shepherds and watering sheep and then he marries a girl named Zipporah and has a, a, a son named Gershom. And that's it. You think, what is this about? Some people have said that, well, this, was, this is a story that was chucked into the text later on from some anti-Moses people to try and demonstrate that, look, he's not as good a guy as you think he is. But the truth is it does fit with the book of Exodus and it fits as an introduction to who Moses is. Because what we see in this passage is that the language in this story is echoed later in the story by God. That everything that we see about Moses here, we will see about God later on. All the words here are repeated. The word see says when, when he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he sees the affliction of his people. Later we read in chapter 3, sentence 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. We see the word strike. He struck down the Egyptian. Later in the book, we'll, see, we'll read God saying, I will pass through the land and I will strike Egypt. The word save. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. 2.17. Later in the book of Exodus, in chapter 14, we read, Thus the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptian. We see that Moses provides. In this chapter, Moses provides water for the Midianite woman. And later in chapter 17, the Lord provides water for Israel. In Delivered, we see that an, Egyptian, uh, that an Egyptian Moses delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds. And in chapter 3, God will say, I will come down and deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. All of the words here about Moses and what he is doing are echoed later of God. It's telling us that Moses is going to be God's ambassador. He's going to be working on his behalf. That the way that God will bring about this great act of salvation is through this guy Moses. He's the guy that he's going to be working through. God has not forgotten his people. God is not absent. And God will act. And chapter 2 finishes with these words from God himself. In Exodus 2, 23 to 25, we read, During those days, the king of Egypt died, and all the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, 
And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God has not forgotten. He's been moving this entire time. He's not been sitting aloof or absent or distant. He didn't make a promise and overcook it and then realize he couldn't back it up. He knew exactly what he was doing. He remembered his word and he is working. He is frustrating the purposes of Pharaoh at every step along the way. And he will send Moses as his ambassador as he looks to save his people in an incredible act. God is faithful. He's faithful to his word. And the crazy thing is that God is faithful to his promises in a way that we can't understand. Almost 10 years ago, so last week I had my, uh, Melissa and I, my wife and I had our nine-year anniversary. Thank you. Yep, yeah, okay. But uh, on, our, on our wedding day, I can still remember it. So we had, we had some traditional Anglican vows. And, uh, and at the kind of the key moment in the, in the marriage ceremony, you're looking at one another. And it is, it is uncomfortable because you don't normally have eye contact for that long, but you have to. But at that point, you say these words, and the words are, uh, you know, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and then you finish with, till death do us part. Now, on that day, you've prepared for that day, and you make those promises to the best of your ability, trusting that you will still be the same kind of person in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years' time, and still faithful to those promises, hoping that whatever circumstances, unforeseen circumstances come through, that you will be able to hold fast to those. And it, but in many ways, it's a strong hope. God doesn't promise like that. When God promises, he does it in full view of all the facts, knowing exactly what will happen because he will bring them to pass. When he makes a promise, it's not a hope that he will, he will come good on it. It is a sure thing. When he says a thing, it is as though it's done. And what's crazy is when he made that promise to Abraham to say, I'll make out of you a great nation. And I'll draw in these people. He knew full well what it would cost him. That it would cost him his one and only son. In fact, the metaphor in the Bible of God's faithfulness is that of a husband to a wife. In Ephesians 5, 25 and beyond, we read this. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even right back in the, book, in the beginning of Genesis, when he promised to Abraham that I will gather in a people, he promised it knowing that it would mean Jesus dying on the cross. And even in the book of Hebrews, we are told that Jesus did that for the joy set before him. When we make promises, we hope that we're going to be able to come good on it. We hope that we haven't out-promised our character, but when God promises, it is as sure as done. In the book of Exodus, we see that God has been faithful. Through their years of slavery, he is at work and he is bringing about his purposes and will bring it about in such a significant way that it will still be talked about thousands of years later, and it is. God is faithful. And this matters in a few significant ways for us. And the first is this. It's fair to say that we live in a cynical age. At least in our context here in Sydney, even over the weekend, as we consider the implications of the, of the election, that we live in a cynical age. People are cynical. And people are used to being let down, and it leads to a deep-seated kind of cynicism. Years ago, a, a guy called Andrew Dominic um, directed a film called Chopper, which was about an underworld figure called Mark Chopper Reed. 
And um, it, pretty much, it pretty much started a spate of Australian crime films that we haven't been able to shake ourselves from for years now. It's about the only good films we do, uh, just sort of crime biopics. But, um, but this was kind of one of the first ones that really kicked it off. And uh, he actually spent time with Mark Chopper Reed, and, um, which was obviously a, you know, a nerve-wracking thing, because this is a guy who had a fair reputation as an underworld figure. But um, when he was asked about whether or not he thought that, that Mark Reed would change or had changed, he said this. He said, 99% of people never change significantly over the course of their lives. Therefore, the greatest single indicator of future behavior is past behavior. When we say things like that, and when we say phrases like people never change, it's not positive, is it? But when you say of God that God never changes, is the best news possible. Because God is faithful to his promises, and he can't change. We are cynical because we're used to being let down by other people and even ourselves letting other people down. And yet God is faithful through and through. Even unto death, God has a track record. If the greatest single indicator of future behavior is past behavior, God has a track record of being faithful to his word and his promises. And so I would put to you, if you don't know this kind of love, why not investigate it? We're running something called Introducing Jesus, which is a fresh look at Jesus' life and teaching and ministry. And if you haven't made a decision for yourself, I'd urge you to. Because the promise here is huge. That this, this isn't just mythology, this is history that God has proved himself faithful through. And if you haven't made up your, an opinion for yourself, I'd urge you to do that. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to put to you two things. The first is, if it has never struck you that God is incredibly faithful to a faithless people, you may not have grasped the gospel yet. If you have not yet been overwhelmed by the thought of how could God be so faithful to me, the gospel may not yet have taken root in your heart. Because when we look at our track record of faithlessness to God and his track record of faithfulness to us, what can we say but why? God has proved himself faithful over and over and over again throughout history and even in our own lives. He's a good and faithful God. And so the second one will be this. Be encouraged that your God is faithful. He cannot break a promise and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's been said that we, we develop scripts for our lives and some, some of us may be aware of it, others not so much, but almost everyone has an expectation of what their life is going to look like. And it's usually things that we've absorbed from culture or from our families but we, whether we know it or not, we tend to have an idea of where we expect to be in a few years' time. And oftentimes, the only, the only times we realize that this is actually the case is when it doesn't quite work out. There are certain life events that we're expected to pass through. First job, marriage, family, home ownership, then on to retirement. I guess there's a few things in between, but you kind of get the gist, right? But often it's the case that our lives don't go according to the script that we wrote for ourselves. And at that moment, it can be a pretty crushing moment. And I know there would be some in this room who are at that point. You're single at this point in life, you didn't expect to be. You're married, but your marriage hasn't turned out exactly how you thought a marriage would be. You thought you would have kids by now, but you don't. Or you do have kids, and family life wasn't exactly what you were expecting it to be. Maybe you're less financially secure than you thought you'd be at this stage of life. Or, or maybe it's just the case that you don't know exactly how life was going to turn out or how you thought it would be, but it's not meant to be like this. Just know that God is faithful. 
He's working out his purposes. Despite what you expected for your life, he is good and he, is, he can be held to his word. When he says in his word that God works all things for the good of those who love him, it is a true and faithful promise to stake your life upon. God has a track history of faithfulness. And it's for the encouragement of his people. While they were slaving away in Israelites, they could, as Israelites, they couldn't have imagined what God was about to do in their lives and how he was about to intervene. In the same way, we can be sure that God is faithful to his word even now, even on this side of the cross. And I'm going to pray that we would be. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are eternally faithful, that you cannot break your word or your promise, that you, unlike us, cannot walk away from your word, that though we often and regularly break our word and our promise to others and even to ourselves, that you do not and you cannot, that you are faithful, that when you say a thing, it will come to pass. That when you promise to restore all things one day and to wipe every tear from every eye, it is as good as done. That when you say our sin is put away and atoned for, that it is finished. That when you say you are working in all things for the good of those who love you, that it is true. And Father, we pray that we would be a people marked by a deep trust of you, knowing that we have a faithful and eternal God. And Father, we pray these things for the glory of your name. Amen.